You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Over the last couple of years, I've been meeting with a couple of businessmen to read the Bible. They're reasonably new uh, to following Jesus. And one of them, uh, Stuart, might even be watching, uh, Stuart asked me a question regularly. It's a good question. He says, what, what is God doing in the world? The world is so full of, of chaos and pain and evil. Um, what's God up to? And then he'll say quietly, with all respect, Al, um, if, if the world were a company and God were the CEO, the shareholders would sack him. What's, what's he doing? It's a good question, isn't it? I, I guess especially relevant uh, now in the middle of you know, the coronavirus and, and chaos in our world. And perhaps the answer I should give is this. What if God is doing something that will affect the whole world and if you could see it, would change the whole way that you see the world and yet most people can't see it? Well, that's what Jesus is talking about uh, in Luke chapter 13, in the part of the Bible we'll look at today. Um, What is God doing in our world? Can you see it? How should we respond to it? Now, Jesus explains this uh, in his usual thought-provoking way in in three beautiful little word pictures. Um, The tiny seed, the narrow door, and the huge feast. Tiny seed, narrow door, huge feast. Let's have a look at the tiny seed first. Verses 18 to 20. Can you imagine something very small, very obscure that most people haven't noticed, and yet from this tiny, tiny beginning, it could affect the whole world? Well, very often that's a negative thing. So one article I read about the coronavirus uh, said they think that it started with a horseshoe bat that lives in China. A horseshoe bat is only, uh, they're ugly little fellas, as you can see, but small enough to fit in the palm of your hand. And then they carry viruses, and that's gone through a pangolin, which is like an armor-plated little anteater in Asia that uh, is valued for traditional Chinese medicine, and somehow the virus has got to people through that, will affect the whole world. And yet those two things were so insignificant. It's not always, though, to go from tiny to huge is not always a negative thing. Uh, As I look out my window now, I can see a positive. Um, About 18 months ago, my dad gave me uh, a passion fruit, and uh, passion fruit seeds are absolutely tiny. I didn't know what to do with it, but a mate said, well, stick it in the ground, cover it with dirt, which I did, put it in a garden bed, and then up came a tiny little shoot and add some time, and now it covers the whole fence. In fact, there's a passion fruit on it, and I'm, it took 18 months, but I'm looking forward to eating that passion fruit. Now, that idea of something tiny going to huge is exactly the Jesus parable. Um, just worth noticing, see verse 18, what Jesus literally says in the original languages, he says, therefore, and, and he links the parable he's about to tell to the fact that he's just healed a woman, a woman who in the world's eyes is a nobody, and we don't even know her name. So he's healed this woman, and then he says, therefore, and he tells this parable. Look at verse 18. Then Jesus asked, 
What is the kingdom of God like and what shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. Um, there's a picture of a mustard seed, fits on the end of your finger. Um, and then the mustard plant grows huge. Uh, now this is Salvadora persica, Salvadora persica, and grows up to eight metres high. I don't know if that's a particular plant Jesus had in mind, but you get the idea. Starts small, grows huge. Or Jesus tells a second parable uh, in verse 20. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? Well, it's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through all the dough. So the idea of yeast, just a little bit in what's around 27 kilos of flour or, or dough, um, that is one serious loaf of bread, um, bigger than one family could eat. But the idea, what Jesus literally says is not just mix. He says she took the yeast and she hid it in the dough. And so what's he saying? Well, there's a little bit of yeast. It's hidden. You can't see what's happening. You, you don't see it happen. And yet it quite literally is what he says. It ferments the whole uh, of this 27 kilos, 60 pounds of, of dough. Okay, so hidden, small, affects everything. Small grows into huge. That's the two parables he's told. But what's the parables about? Notice he says these are parables about or comparing the kingdom of God. Now Jesus is always uh, teaching, preaching about the kingdom of God in the Gospels. In fact, he mentions the kingdom of God over 80 times in the Gospels. What does he mean? Well, the kingdom of God's not a, an organization or a, a place or a venue. Um, it, it's... It really means the rule of God in, in people's lives or the reign of God. Vaughan Roberts, who's a pastor in Oxford, has written a book called God's Big Picture, kind of an overview of the Bible. Listen to what he says. God wants to bring, bring back people to himself who willingly submit to his rule. Uh, that is what is meant by the kingdom of God. Not the area where he rules, for he rules everywhere, but the sphere where his rule is gladly accepted. Now, I suppose you could say the kingdom of God is uh, the rule of God's king in people's lives or people coming to know God through his king. It's not the same as the church or churches. Uh, churches are people who acknowledge the kingship of Jesus, who live for him. It's the gathering of those people. The kingdom of God is a dynamic idea about the reign of God in people's lives. Now, why did Jesus need to tell these parables about the mustard seed and the yeast? Perhaps another question, if you've ever read the Gospels, you might wonder why, why are the religious leaders coming and asking for a sign from heaven? Like Jesus has just fed a huge crowd with a cut lunch or just healed someone from a terrible disease and then they come and ask for a sign from heaven. Why? What's going on? Um, or even John the Baptist. Uh, who is Jesus' cousin and a great prophet, he sends and asks Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Are you really God's king? What's going on? Jewish people in the first century had been reading their Old Testament for centuries. Good thing to read the first part of the Bible. And the Old Testament promised that one day God would come and set up his kingdom. 
God would come and God's kingdom would, well, he would judge and destroy evil and and those who were opposed to him. He would rescue and save his people. In fact, he'd renew the whole of the creation. Um, it would be literally world-shaking. Um, and the, the prophets talked about that. They, particularly the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, uh, the prophets expected a, a cataclysmic, uh, capital A, apocalyptic event would be world-shattering. Let me show you a couple of verses from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 13. He says, uh, God says through Isaiah, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Or Isaiah 65, verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Um, there's so much in there. Let me just give you a summary. Uh, George Eldon Ladd, who was an American scholar um, in his book, The Presence of the Future, he's got a great summary. If this is a little complicated for you, don't worry. Uh, if you don't get it, it, it we'll, we'll keep going. But listen to this summary. It's very clever, very good. He says this, The prophets again and again look forward to the deliverance of the creation from, quote, the bondage of corruption. Uh, and the description is often couched in simple physical terms. The wilderness will become fruitful, chapter 32 of Isaiah. The desert will blossom. The sorrow and sighing will flee away. The burning sands will be cooled and the dry places become springs of water. And the earth becomes full of the knowledge of God. And, and when that happened, it would be, a, like I say, a cataclysmic, capital A, apocalyptic event. But Jesus comes along with just a few people and doing miracles that foreshadow or point to what's coming later. And he says that one day this cataclysmic event will happen, yes, but in the meantime, the kingdom of God will begin small and will grow to be huge. And just like the yeast, it will affect everything, but it, it will be hidden from so many. They will not see it as it as it grows, as it goes. And the question is, can you see it? Can you see the kingdom of God at work? Can you see God growing his kingdom? Um, when you do see it, it changes everything. The best analogy that I can think of, uh, a mate of mine, Scotty, is a, uh, how would we put it, a pest controller. And it's his job uh, to remove feral animals from farms in southwest Queensland. Uh, feral pigs and feral cats and feral pigs, all oh, sorry, feral foxes, cats, pigs, all that sort of nasty stuff. A lot of that has to be done at night. And to help with that, he's got a thermal scope. Now, here's a picture of it. Um, a thermal scope registers body heat. And he let me have a look through it one night on a farm and no street lights and no moon. It was just pitch black. But uh, you can look out into the darkness and see nothing. But once you put this thermal scope to your eye, it, it lights up everything. It changes the way you see things. So he, he got me to look. Uh, the farmer had some of his cattle dogs um, in, uh, in a truck about 100 metres away. Pitch dark, could see nothing. You look through the scope and then it was like the dogs were made of phosphorus, like they were glowing in the dark. And the same happens for people. Now, it's a bit like that when, when you actually see the kingdom of God. Once God opens your eyes 
by his spirit and you can see it changes everything. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's when God renews you spiritually by his spirit that you can see what's going on. And when God opens your eyes, the kingdom of God will be as precious as that treasure that's hidden in the field that he talks about, or as precious as finding that perfect great pearl of of great price. You'll see people whose lives are changed and transformed. And it's not a trivial thing. The Bible talks about two kingdoms. as the kingdom of the evil one, where people live, or you're in the kingdom of the sun that God loves. And it's being taken from darkness to light. In fact, um, in, in Paul's letter to the Christians in Colossae, that's, that's called Colossians chapter 1, look at what Paul says to these people who've become followers of Jesus. He says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, it's the kingdom of the evil one, from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And redemption is the idea of being um, bought at a price, being bought to God uh, and having sins, the wrong things we've done, forgiven. So what Jesus is saying is uh, today we can, we can know God through his king and we can live in the kingdom of God. We can know forgiveness and joy and hope and purpose and, and be part of a community of people who are to love and care for one another and, and for other people. And you can have that now. You can, you can know God's king now. Um, and in the future, there will be a judgment day. And people will be judged on how they responded to that offer of forgiveness. Uh, there'll be a new creation, new heavens and new earth, uh, and so on. And I guess the question is this. In that future judgment, how many people will be saved? How many... How many will be okay? How many will be accepted by God and how many rejected? I mean, that's the question that someone asked Jesus as he's on his way to Jerusalem. You see verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, the person who asks this asks only a few. Uh, For Jesus' audience, Jewish people in the first century many of them would have thought that only Jewish people would be okay um, with the judgment day at the end, uh, that God would only accept Jewish people uh, into his kingdom in the end times. Only a few. Well, I guess you could ask that same question today. It does seem in Australia that there's only a few who take Jesus seriously. Sure, we, you know, we have holidays, Christmas and Easter because of him or um, people may have gone to schools that acknowledge the name of Jesus or were founded by Christians. People may give to charities run by Jesus' followers. But how many actually take him seriously? Is it, is it only a few who will be saved? Do you know what? Jesus says that's the wrong question, the wrong question to ask. So you see the second point, he talks about the narrow door. So they've had the tiny seed and now the narrow door, verses 22 to 28. Look at how Jesus answers them. Verse 23, he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. 
because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. What Jesus is saying, don't worry about numbers and, and what about them and what will they do. He's saying, make sure that you're there. Make sure that you have every effort to enter through the narrow door. Now he says narrow, why? Because the New Testament teaches that Jesus is the only way into God's kingdom. Jesus is the only way to be accepted by God. Now I know that seems narrow, but where's Jesus on his way to? Do you notice verse 22? He's on his way to Jerusalem. And so for uh, since way back in chapter 9, Jesus says, Luke says literally, set his face to walk to Jerusalem, 100 or more kilometres to die on the cross. Why? To die in our place, to take the wrong that we've done, to pay the penalty for us so that we can be forgiven. Narrow? Well, yes, because of what it cost. If you keep reading in Luke's Gospel, you'll see on the night before Jesus dies, uh, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane facing the cross and separation from his father. And Jesus is literally weeping and sweating and asking, is there any other way? Is there, is there any alternative? And the answer from his father is, no, there's no other way. And so if there are any other way, if there are any other door, if there's any other wide door that God would have chosen that, the only way to be right with God is the incredibly costly sacrifice of his son. It's the way to enter God's kingdom. Why do it now? Why does Jesus say make every effort, get on with it, do it? Because one day the door will close. See verse um, 24. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, he'll stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. There'll come a time when it will be too late. The narrow door will become the closed door. And look how people will answer. See verse 26. Then you will say, but we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. You know what? They had him, they had him with them and they ate with him. They drank with him. They, they listened to him. You know what? They took him for granted. And the door is closed. And I can't help but think for so many in our society, it saddens me deeply, but I can't help but think for so many in our society, they'll say, but we, we had our public holidays because of you, Christmas and Easter, and, and there were big stone buildings in most of our cities and towns with pointy roofs all about you. And we went to schools that, that paid you lip service and... We gave money to the salvos and, and we used your name all the time. Oh, granted, it was an expletive, but we used your name all the time. And, and verse 27, but he will reply, I don't know you or where you, came, where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. Uh, it's a terrible thing to take Jesus for granted. But then he says, so tiny seed, narrow door, and then finally, um, the huge feast. And Jesus has a warning and a promise. So the huge feast, verse uh, 28 to 30. See verse 28. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Uh, 
You see, Jesus warns his first listeners. Um, he says they'll be weeping and gnashing. I mean, gnashing of teeth. You can translate the same word grinding, oh, grinding of teeth. I think it's the idea of frustration at, at what could have been, at, at missing out. And why for these first listeners? Well, he says, you'll see in the kingdom of God on that, on that day when everything arrives, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the, the giants of faith in the Old Testament, they'll be there. And his listeners thrown out. And I think what Jesus is saying is your your ethnicity, your national group, your family group, your religious tribe is not enough. There's only one way to enter the kingdom, to be right on the last day, and that is through trust in Jesus, that he, he died for us and rose again. And so... I guess if I could ask, will there only be a few? He said, no, 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 no. Jesus' answer is there'll be countless people. You see verse 29, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Uh, he's saying all cultures and tribes and families will be welcome, people from everywhere. And you know what? The New Testament actually celebrates cultural differences uh, so to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, doesn't mean you have to give up your language or your culture or your food or your national dress. None of those things. They're celebrated. You just have to enter through the narrow door of trusting and following Jesus. And has the kingdom grown? Have people come from north, south, east and west? Well, we don't know exactly how many people are in the kingdom, but here's an interesting statistic. The Gallup World Poll Organization uh, polls uh, people on different issues in 160 countries. They're not allowed into China, but other than that, around the world. They estimate, 2015 figures, that 2.2 billion people, 2.2 billion people put their hand up and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Uh, that's hard to know what that means, but they've drilled down a little further. There's 1.1 billion people meet in churches week by week around the world. Now, not, not this week, unfortunately, but for the last 2,000 years and hopefully again very soon to meet together. But that's over a billion people. Uh, there are many, many people. The kingdom has grown huge, people who acknowledge the kingship of Jesus. Um, notice he calls his kingdom, when it finally comes, he calls it a feast. Uh, the end point of the kingdom, a feast, a wedding celebration with, with more than five people too. You know, my daughter got married in November last year uh, down the south coast uh, of New South Wales and it was so much fun. It really was a hoot. Um, after being cooped up in the house for so long, I, I would love, I'd love to do that again. Um, and Jesus promises that's a picture uh, of the future, of his kingdom. You know what? You can be part of that. You can be part of that if you'll trust him for forgiveness and live with him as your Lord. Uh, interesting that Jesus stands uh, here with just a small group of people listening in Nowheresville, Judea, um, having just shown what the kingdom will be like by healing this woman, and we don't even know her name, and he says the kingdom of God will grow and it'll turn our world's values and priorities and glories upside down. Uh, it'll change everything. See verse 30, he says, Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. When, when the kingdom truly arrives, it'll change everything. So quick summary, 
Jesus is saying, one, the kingdom will start small like a seed, but grow to be huge. Two, it'll be hidden in a way like yeast in dough, and yet it will affect everything. And three, you can enter the kingdom through that narrow door, but do it now. Do it now. Well, I know it's a cliche to say we're living in extraordinary times. I guess it's a cliche because it's true. But it's also they're also frightening times and, and time of great anxiety for so many people. But you know what? If you if you belong to Jesus, if He's your Lord, if you live in His kingdom, you know where history is going. And the more that we can embrace that and understand it, the more it'll change our lives. Like, for example, with anxiety. Uh, just before uh, Luke chapter 13, just before this in chapter 12, Jesus says to his people, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Right. We don't know what will happen over the next few months, six months, nine months. Will this happen again? We don't. But I'll tell you, we know where history is going. And we know that Jesus has each one of his people uh, individually and globally. He's got it under control. If you forgive the, you know, the cliche, um, it'll all be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. So it makes such a difference to, to whether you face the future with fear or with confidence that he's got you, it's all right. Or priorities. You know, also in chapter 12, Jesus talks to a world that's obsessed about what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. Right? <laughs> what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. Not much has changed in 20 centuries, has it? Um, and then what is it, or 21 centuries, what does Jesus say to those in his kingdom? He says this, don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. He says, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. The greatest priority, once you can see, uh, once light, be, or once darkness becomes light, once you can see the greatest priority is people coming to know Jesus as their king and to find the promise of eternal life. Um, let me finish uh, with, I think, a beautiful summary of what it is that Jesus is promising to those who will trust him. Peter Jensen uh, gave uh, the ABC Boyer Lectures in 2005, and the topic was the future of Jesus Christ. And Peter uh, gives us... Uh, a great summary of the beautiful things that Jesus promises to those who will trust him. Let me read this uh, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Peter said this in his lecture. And what did he, Jesus, say about that coming kingdom? The kingdom that Jesus painted, sorry. And what did he, Jesus, say about that coming kingdom? The picture that Jesus painted at the end involved the great things that we would all probably long for. The defeat of evil, and the triumph of good, the death of death, a future of justice and yet forgiveness, intense, overflowing human happiness and joy. He called the coming kingdom a banquet, a wedding, a feast, a resurrection, a robust and loving community in which every tear would be wiped away and we would live joyously as we were meant to under the rule of the Father God. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the great news that you are at work growing your kingdom. We ask, please, that we might enter through that narrow door that is open to everyone and come to trust Jesus with our lives. Please help us to know him as our king and so live without anxiety 
and to make his kingdom our priority. We ask this in his name. Amen.